A quick disclaimer, opinions of host and guest do not represent the views or opinions of functional movement systems. Always consult your physician before beginning any exercise program. This general information is not intended to replace your healthcare professional. Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let's preview what's coming up in this episode. For part two of our season finale, we continue the inspiring story of Steve Carnes. Steve suffered a stroke and had brainstem surgery in the spring of 2017. He elected to rehab himself with astounding results. This week, Gray and Lee join in on the conversation. We discuss Steve's military background, what it means to live your rehab, how his approach differs from the classic model, and why it may give hope to similar patients seeking alternatives. So let's get going with the season three finale of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. Well, Steve, uh, you know, you know, watching your journey after you had that injury, I think one thing that for me, puts things in perspective, you know, knowing a little bit more about you is, is your background in the military and the amount of discipline and determination that it, it took to, to do what you did. I think a lot of that had to come from, from your training in the military. Is that, is that right? Maybe give us a little bit more background on that area. Yeah, I, I would say it's, it's fair to say. Um, when, when you're actually in the, the, the situation, it's, I suspect it's maybe a little different from the outside because that one aspect of my view, I mean, I, I didn't think, right, I've got to summon determination to apply to this task. It was, well, what else are you going to do? Poor me just doesn't go anywhere. Um, the sympathy's nice, I suppose, but it, it isn't going to change your situation. I mean, I suppose one thing which the, the military training does give is that if, if you're faced with a problem, the first responsibility of ownership and attempts to the solutions is is yourself, um, and that 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 was where uh, that was where it was. I mean, there, there was a whole. I mean, the story and the background that put me in that situation was was sort of quite unique, um, and <laughs> will will be more than a little different than. Than most people who were there, although the same the same approach would work with them. Uh, I suppose the difference that made the difference was was that time in the military. But but what I did in the military and those experiences which I had with training the um, the recruits. So that's some of what you did, Steve, and maybe give us a little more insight into kind of your role in the military, because I do think that's kind of fascinating and helps kind of tell, kind of round out this entire story for you, is that you did have a little bit of idea about training individuals, preparing them for those tests that you mentioned, but also the, the your background in the medical aspect and, and being able to, you know, get a little bit of um, medical training as well. And one thing that, and, and watching your story that, I can't imagine, you know, when you came back in that first seven days, you know, one thing that I picked up on and resonated with me personally is just you were walking and, you know, the, the traditional way of thinking is to continue to walk and build on that. But your determination and your discipline to say, you know what, I'm not going to walk. 
I'm going to crawl. I'm going to do the the neurodevelopmental sequences. I know that has been around since humans have been here. I'm going to do that. And as much as I want to walk and as much as people will tell me I should be walking, you're not going to do that. And I think that's what, what I picked up on. But, but I think what you're talking about with your, with your training and, and some of the areas that you got into, that really helped set the stage for what you, you know, that journey that put you on once you had that injury. Or not the injury, yeah. but, but sustained that problem. Possibly, which ironically was an assistance. Maybe something that I, I suspect my wife and daughter would, would describe as me, uh, my pathological certainty that I'm always right. <laughs> I know how that is with the guy sitting over here beside me. Well, if you are, then that's called grit. And if you're not, you, it's, it's called an accident. So Yeah, all wrong. <laughs> yeah. So that, that I mean, I, I did have absolute certainty that that, that was the way to go. Um, Previously, with, with my success with the, the change in the, with the recruits training program, and I'm basing it on a movement pattern and regional interdependence approach, and then ever more with paying attention to the neural development sequence to try to clean up quality. I, this, this is straight up. I honestly used to wonder why they didn't use it with brain injury patients. And then, hey presto, <laughs> I was given the chance to walk me talk quite, uh, quite, quite literally. Well, in, in PT school, my eyes were open to the fact that in a few unique pockets, that most of the neuro appreciation I have was from situations where all of that motor control is, is taken from you and how a more natural approach gets you back. And, and the one thing I wanted to get back to where you and Lee started is you were in a position to physically appraise a bunch of individuals who had physical tasks ahead of them and may or may not had awareness of what their abilities were. And, and whether you're testing them or screening them or just trying to break them in half, I think one of the things that probably became immediately apparent to you is some people are very disconnected from their awareness of their physical abilities or physical functions or physical limitations. And some people are tied right into that. And what you said about what you were faced with on your, on your personal application of this was the fact that no illusions. This is a realistic situation. They're telling me there's one way out of this hole. Another way out of this hole makes perfect sense. And I think you managed your awareness of the situation. You probably mm-hmm. protected the situation from getting worse while you were pursuing a different corrective path. And that's just the pragmatic and practical military mind being resourceful with what you had right in front of you. And the, the, the bottom line is the, the mechanics of, of the human body are, are the same, regardless where on the scale you are, whether you're looking for high performance, whether you're, whether you're looking um, to actually just learn movements, or, or, or whether you, you're just trying to get by the, it's just physics, biomechanical advantage, and we've all got the same broad specification. So it, it, it's just whether the parameters of, of frequency, duration, and intensity, whether they show up your flaws, and where you are on that, on that graph will, will dictate whether, whether the symptoms show on it. I was, came over to, to rally in 2014 uh, with the FMS 1 and 2 there. Uh, and I think it was the, the Perform Better Summit as well. And there was uh, one of the guys presented on 
the neural development sequence. Greg Rose did a, a, a brilliant piece on uh, on neuroplasticity. There was, there was a piece that I think I've heard you talk about this before, Greg, with um, when he was over in Portugal with the kids and and the golf. This, this register. Yep. Yeah, oh yeah, the yeah. junior uh, golf development. Yep, yep, the golf yeah, development the, program. And he, he had the, the videos he, he had of, of them and, and their movement literacy. And this, this, this is something which uh, you know, came into acute focus with my more recent rehab of the brain injury patients, of, of how somebody's movement skills actually is reflected in, in how they view and, and, and see movement. In, that, in, in the earlier days, uh, before I was using Zoom for um, for the rehab, I, I would I would send a video of what I, I would like them to do, and they would send one back, and I would critique it that way. And I would send a video, and then what I got back, it, it would look nothing like it. Now, obviously, the, the guy's got compromised movement skills, but where I'm I'm trying to to talk him through um, what he needs to correct. You were thinking that what he was doing was exactly the same. I'm sort of how, how can you how can you see that and understand it like that? But the, the way the brain works, it, it, it doesn't just see what is. It just sends a load of input into the software up there, and that works with all of your life experiences to that date, and then results in meaning and understanding. And the, 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 these people were doing the drills, thinking that they were they were moved perfect. Unrecognizable. Well, since since media presents so many images on our phone and on our TV and, and every other screen we look at, for the first time probably in the history of humanity, we are the um, how can I say the in the bleachers. We we still mm-hmm. watch movement. We're attracted to movement in sports and dance and arts. So we consume a lot of movement information, but we don't move a lot. So it's very easy to be lulled into the thing that you could probably run just like they do on the Ninja Warrior course, or you could do this. And, and I would, I would venture to say that many times when people are doing these extreme feats and exercise, whether it's in a box or a, a, a fun run somewhere in the mud, people have been consuming movement information. They have no idea they can't. And the injuries are at a poor forecast of ability not that the the course was dangerous or unsafe. It's people don't have any benchmark to to gauge themselves to to really calibrate that awareness to the level of obstacle they're getting ready to consume. Well, I think that's I think kind of talking just getting it into exercise, Steve. And I want to get your your insight on this as well. Take something as simple as a, as a squat. When you tell someone to squat, they think they're squatting right. Like yeah. they don't understand that they're not doing what you're asking them to do. And this goes to kind of Steve to your point is that they are assuming because they don't know what, they don't know if their butt's getting low enough. They think their butt's getting low enough because their head's low, yeah. but they're using yeah. their back to mm-hmm. do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the mentality of a lot of people. And that goes back to what kind of where you are in your thinking, Steve, of, okay, we can't force this person and I can't talk them into squatting better. Mm-hmm. In essence, yeah, Steve, you got to get them down on the floor mm-hmm. and train them to stand. And it's no different than what you need to do in the weight room than what you had to go through because that's how the brain works, right? Yeah. And, and that was one of the one of the big breakthroughs in the, the productivity of the, the work I've been doing with, with rehab patients was the was the, the use of use of Zoom. 
so you can you can do some, some real time remote um, therapy with them, uh, and also sort of shut up and coach, as uh, as Greg would say. Getting mm-hmm. around the use of verbal cues all the time, and yeah. getting someone to understand that I can't cue you into squatting better if you don't understand you're not squatting. I mean, how, how do, and, and yeah, kind of give me your thoughts on that, Steve. There's, there's an interesting alternative uh, sort of perspective on that for the for the brain injury patient in that what what works, you know, un- unquestionably the best is living your recovery. That that's the, the that's the way we all learned movement in the, in the first place. The, the movement was by discovery, but also through solving movement problems. So. Rather than, than, than teaching somebody and giving them kneeling drills, which I still do, you know, the, the, the best application of that is if they see something across the, the room, like they want to say the television control, they crawl over to the television control. And then in order to free up the hands to do something useful, they come up onto the knees. Now, that is, is being informed by, by their environment and by the task. And, and the, the neurology engages with the task immediately and they sort of, you know, they get out of their own way. You if, said if it you perfectly. Did. You said live, live your own recovery. Yeah. And, and, and it is something you have to embrace. And when people convert what you just said to a package of sets and reps and mm-hmm. they don't understand that you did just do a tall kneeling chop or you did do a half kneeling chop. But I think as long as, and and the word neurodevelopmental sequence, neuroplasticity, all these words that come together are really a summation of those postures and patterns that occur between a time in your life as an infant when you have very poor movement control to the thing Mm -hmm. that happens when you have very, very independent locomotion. The only obstacle you need is those postures and patterns till you're on your feet. And then if you want a resistance band or a kettlebell or something hard to do, then we will introduce obstacles that you must locomote over or manipulate. But if movement is the obstacle, if transitioning from crawling to half kneeling is the obstacle, don't keep adding shit to that. Don't keep selling me equipment for that. Let that rough board sand the other rough board. Let your mobility barrier, your stability barrier work against each other at a manageable thing. And there's another thing that's very important about the neurodevelopmental sequence, rolling to crawling to creeping and, and on up. All right, hold on, hold on. What is the neurodevelopmental sequence? You said it really quick, but I think that's something, because Steve has mentioned it, you mentioned it, neuroplasticity, neurodevelopmental sequencing. What is that? Because it's not new. It's been around. Okay. If you're a baby on your back, what do you got to do to crawl on all fours? You've got to basically be able to roll over, and most babies will gain competency rolling in both directions because rolling in both directions sort of syncs up the left and right side of your body for reciprocal crawling. That means the opposite arm and the opposite leg move in unison. This sets you up for gait, but you're not upright yet. So you're going to go through squatting, 
tall kneeling and half kneeling to get there. And once you get upright, you're going right back down. But if you watch a toddler walk, they don't swing their arms. But by the time they're walking independently, that arm swing is just as synced up as that crawling arm sync with with the leg. So everybody that's seen a baby struggle in each of these phases and then has all of a sudden seen a two-year-old walk better than their parent, that's the developmental sequence we're talking about. It's undisputed and it has milestones and the entire planet agrees on that sequence whether culture or climate or anything influences it. The funny thing is how much opinions change right after that. This is how we develop kids. This is how we develop kids. This is how we you know, develop things. But we acknowledge that the original operating system of humanity has to have those postures and patterns. Everything else we download after that is an app. When does the app ever get to erode the operating system? And so if I had to summarize the word function now, 2021, it is the innate human ability to adapt. And if you don't own that operating system, you're going to have a harder time adapting if you do. So you actually need musculoskeletal plasticity, mobility and stability to inform neuroplasticity because rolling has a lot of sensory information. Your whole body's touching the planet and a little bit of motor information, turn your head, turn your hips. By the time you're crawling, you have less contact with the environment, hands and legs, creeping or whatever. Every stage of development, you have less sensory input and more motor work to do. Why did they ever try to start Steve walking when he Mm -hmm. needed way more sensory information and he had no chance of a concussion crawling around his house. Walking like you did in some of those videos as your experiment proved, yeah. you had a big time, a concussion on top of everything else you had. Didn't make a lot of sense. Nobody's going to get a concussion crawling. So there's a safety element built in. There's a sensory rich environment built in when your whole body is in contact with the planet as opposed to just your heels and toes. Because you're doing a lot more motor than sensory then. But doesn't this just make inductive sense? And so many people just don't have time to do it that way. And yet nature says this is the way to do it, whether it's an extreme situation like Steve's or whether it's a very, very inconvenient thing like, Lee, you got to fix your left hip before you do swings again. The, the, the extreme informs the mean in many cases. And, and there's, a, there's a huge mental aspect to, to both the, the learning, and the acquisition and the, the execution of, of movement in that it, if movement is cognitively controlled, like if you're saying put the left foot there, put the right foot there and shift your weight, that, that, that doesn't translate to the sports field or that doesn't translate to, to natural movement. This, this concept of being able to get out of your own way and have the reason to move uh, instruct your neurology how to, how to best respond to it. Uh, and if you if you provide that reason to move, like for instance a a, a bottom up kettlebell in a Turkish get up, that that talks to you all of the way up, you know, and it will sort of like say, look, if you want to transition to to that posture, this is where this is where that knee's got to go, or this is where you've got to shift your centre of gravity. However, if if you've just got a a, a bland drill of, of doing reps, or you know, if they think they're doing squats and they're just doing knee dips. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't communicate. It, it won't translate to, to performance. It'll translate to isolating and building a bigger muscle, which admittedly, that's what a, a lot of people want. 
But if, if somebody wants movement competency, then it, that, that's just going to get in the way. When you denied yourself the ego candy of walking, even though you knew you could stand up and walk, you felt that it required full concentration. You had an appreciation that if walking isn't subconscious or nearly automatic, motoric in it, in its thing, then I don't want it. Meaning that's your way of denying yourself often until you got well. And But Lee just looked at me when you denied yourself that ability because let's be honest, both, both Lee and I, if we had to watch one of our parents crawl in rehab, there's a small bit of humility that I just want to see mom stand back up. I want to see dad stand back up. Yeah. But if we uh-huh. can deny ourselves that ego candy for about five freaking minutes in the real mm-hmm. span of things you can actually have most of that walking back. But I think there's something that we all must remind ourselves that gratification to be upright isn't worth learning to do it wrong or having to think your way through every step the rest of your life. It's okay if Lee dances that way, which I think he does, (laughs) but, but the other movements in life that are meaningful also need to be automatic. I don't even know if Lee and I wouldn't keep dipping our toe in the water of walking every day, thus reinforcing the mistake. But but the grit and the yeah. perspective it took you to stick to your guns and say quality before quantity has rewarded you uh, well, far I, more than anybody could imagine. I think that's the, that to me is part of the argument of why most people can't do what you did. You know, and, and, I, and we're not certainly suggesting this is the right fit for everyone, right, Steve? Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't have that determination to say, I'm going to do this until I'm going to crawl, I'm going to roll, I'm going to do all the things that you did without walking and knowing that, yeah, I can walk, but I, I, it's not going to get me to my outcome, which is walking well. I want to walk but, well before I walk a lot. I, but I, I had that, that total conviction that 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 was the route. I mean, I, I think given that this hadn't been proven practice before, I suppose um, I could maybe give myself credit for, for running with that belief. But if it was recognised, or if the guys wearing white coats were saying, right, this is the um, this is the gold standard treatment, people would buy into it and do it. I'm sure they would, because it, it's it could be pretty terrifying in in some ways if. If, if you feel right, that's it. This is as good as it gets. I, I can't walk. I mean, the, the classic model, I, I presented at the, the World Congress for Neurorehabilitation in um, October of last year, and they had a, a headline presentation about relearning to walk. And what was advocated in that was, first of all, um, is that what you do immediately is you, you get the patient to, to try to walk. If they can't walk by themselves, they walk with assistance. And it's just a repetitive. um, And they use the word high intensity. I I don't know quite where that got in there. But high intensity attempts to to, to walk. And then if they're not walking by six months, you stop trying to teach them to walk. And and you learn um, uh, your coping mechanisms. I was like, wow, this is... This is what's being advocated. When the, the stroke and brain injury recovery gets split into, I think, first seven days is the acute phase, subacute, seven days to three months, late subacute, three months to six, and then it's the chronic stage thereafter. And so they, they, they were saying that once in the chronic stage, 
uh, no significant improvement is, is possible. And they define uh, the chronic stage where they see, cease to get success, not where success is, is, is limited. They, they basically are reporting their failures and then saying that's the, that's the, yeah, the end line. Exactly. And, and to be honest with you, Steve, when, when you were telling us about the military and the 1% pass rate, how many sports industries and governments in a physical standard when they see it erodes that much uh erodes mm-hmm. that much they just move the bar down so yeah. so you know yeah. and and i've said you know for the last hundred years average ain't normal mm-hmm. it's just yeah. average but it's not yeah. normal <laughs> if you want to see normal watch a baby learn to walk if it takes 21 months and you lose your independence like you did brother there's your, there's your time span right there. If you want independence, you're going to have to give it up temporarily, but you'll get it back tenfold if you do that. If you insist on ambulating with an assisted device right now to save face, you will erode the natural operating system that's trying to rebuild itself. And I, I would, whilst it's probably fair to say I'm, I'm not average, I absolutely am normal. I, I don't have any magic genes whatsoever. Um, you know, in, in all the peer groups that I've been in, I have never, ever even been remotely close to being the most physically talented. I mean, I've always had a, a lot of application. Um, and, you know, I suppose I backed it up with a fair bit of knowledge as well. But I, I've never, never been sort of gifted genetically. And so any, anyone, I was going to say anyone could achieve what I did. But one, one of the things is, and this is the big one that the classic model misses, is that the, the majority of people who, who suffer brain injury is acquired brain injury, I, you know, stroke, uh, things of that nature. Um, and the majority of them are going to be 40 or 50 plus, overwhelmingly. Now, in, in the Western world, at least, how many 40 plus people have, have got anything even remotely approaching or authentic mobility? No. They don't, and that's that's yeah. one of the things where I know a lot of professionals may listen to your story and say, there's absolutely no way I could do this with my patients, but let's think about what's going on. How many risk factors did you go into your stroke with? You Your BMI was probably favorable compared mm-hmm. to average. Your balance yeah. and your movement screen probably weren't bad because you were the kind of guy that looks for weaknesses and at least mm-hmm. manages those. So when we look at all the musculoskeletal risk factors that some of the moves that you had to do were taken off the table because you were already, I would consider a physically healthy guy. You didn't need to be a specimen, but you also didn't have major mobility, balance issues. You probably didn't have musculoskeletal pain beyond that thing. So you actually had an injured brain and a fairly good body for your age, which made made this possible. If you have somebody that's already got a total hip by 40 and this were to happen, yes, you have to work around that too. But but it mm-hmm. does not mean it's impossible. So a lot of people are going to maybe face some of what you faced with a lot worse body, but it still doesn't mean you can't figure it out. Know your orthopedic yeah. restrictions, know your neurological restrictions. There's a razor's edge in between. You either got the guts to do it or not. And that's what professionals need to say. So not everybody can do it as fast or well as you, but you also manage your risk factors beforehand. How many people get to manage their risk factors at the exact same time they're going to get to manage a brain injury? 
Physical inactivity is a leading contributor to many health-related problems, but throwing a lot of exercise at it without looking at movement quality can just make the problem worse. At FMS, we are wanting to empower everyone to see movement through the lens of function. So for a limited time, we are offering our course, A Common Sense Approach to Evaluating Movement, for free to our podcast listeners. Visit functionalmovement.com and get your free course today. Follow the link in the description and use promo code CSA. Pod at checkout. That's CSA POD. Now let's get back to the podcast. So, Steve, what you're what you're talking about there, the the classic model doesn't even consider what Gray just talked about either, right? I mean, they're just saying this is what everybody's gonna do, no matter whether you were coming into it with, you know, obesity or you know, total hips. This is what you do. They just treat it as a as a software problem. They don't treat the the hardware. At all. Now, they, everyone would talk about, oh, I've lost me balance and, and talk about balance as if it is a, a singular and an isolated either skill or, or component. Balance is, is, is enormously multifaceted. But, but one of the, one of the staple diets of it is, is structural integrity. Now, if, if you haven't got the mobility to, to, to get that structural integrity, then you, you know, you, you're pushing the ball uphill already. But then if you've got compromised neurology and you haven't got the mobility, the structural integrity, you're just making it harder. Exactly, because as we know, when you're doing what you did, you're actually changing behaviors because you've got very almost reflexive behaviors that you've got to overcome. And it's conscious before it becomes subconscious. But we all know that perception drives behavior. So if yeah. your perception is skewed, if your perception is transferring pain, this position's painful, this position's impossible, this, this position has a barrier or a mobility wall, this position feels very unstable and it scares me. Well, if these are all your per- perceptions, how are you going to change your behavior? So if perception drives behavior and we don't have time to get you comfortable and mobile, how are you going to feel anything different than you're already responding to? And we can't change your responses. So, you know, going, going into your next life crisis with a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, function means you are going to be more adaptable by default because you're demonstrating the original operating system of adaptability. And if you've lost some of it, reclaim it and quit asking sets, reps, and weight, get the movement. And, and one thing I realized as far back as athletic body and balance is I would never was satisfied telling people a corrective was a single station exercise. You, yeah. you, you, you're uh, wobbly on this foot. We're going to do balance exercises on this leg. I was never satisfied with that. I always wanted uh, something that looked like a sun salutation, a Turkish getup, or all the stuff I did with the Reebok core board and athletic body and balance. I want to see you blend together posture and pattern postures are your starting and ending place and patterns are what's in between in an elegant way to move your spine from horizontal to vertical a few times. That's how I run the circuit board. It is nice to have all the circuits in line and it's nice to have all your wires soldered up. But if you don't have time to run the circuit board, what'd you do all the other stuff for? 
So that's, I, I appreciate that, that transition of posture and pattern. And I promise you, Steve, I don't know what you saw when you first got to engage with some of the people that were on your path through Zoom. But if you truly want to assess movement and want them to get a thing, don't ask them to hold half kneeling. Ask them to transition from quadruped to half kneeling. They will experience the hiccups they need to feel because when they see you transition, now there's a time and smoothness factor, whereas they think they're going to plank and quadruped and do what you did. But there's no way they can deny they didn't get from point A to point B the same way you did. So a lot of times I will use a, a transition between two postures to really show people their problem. And believe it or not, that was some of my original thought when Lee and I are bouncing uh, movement screen ideas off of each other and the other guys in the clinic are. The deep squat's undeniable. You put a stick over your head, you're either deep squatting or you're not. It, it, and you can't will yourself one inch deeper than your subconscious mind or your perceptions will let you go. So I love putting you right up against that thing because if you can't overcome it, we just move down a level. And yeah. if you can no. overcome it, I'm going to ask you the next thing. But one of the other things I heard you say during your rehab process, the visits you had in home by, I think, the rehabilitation person, they, yeah. they didn't really have anything to add because you were so far ahead mm-hmm. of the game. The very first yeah. thing that I'd have done is just said, oh, the developmental sequence. Okay, what's the next phase? Let's me and you push it together. I'll be your safety. I'll spot you today. We can actually force use paradigm. But the fact that somebody with training didn't even see the potential in your next phase of challenge, it's right there. We all had to learn it to get the degree. <laughs> Why can't this be applied to this man? Yeah, they, they just had a cup of tea and moved on to the next one. <laughs> yeah, they looked at you like a Rubik's Cube. It's like, how'd you do that? <laughs> and part of, what you, part of what you're saying, Steve, even with people who go into an injury that such as you know you had, even if they go into that with – limited mobility, all these other, you know, health issues that, you know, all you're saying is it doesn't change the process with which you would recommend. The classic mm-hmm. model is not necessarily going to be any better for that person or necessarily worse. But all you're saying is that person is going to just take a little bit more time to work through. They've just got a couple extra hurdles to overcome, but it still should start using the regional interdependence, the, the neurodevelopment sequence that you went through, right? You can't teach a, a, a skill or you can't acquire a skill in a range of movement that doesn't exist. And, and so if, if people haven't got that mobility, well, first of all, they should be starting with the skills that, that walking depends on. You don't just go straight to walking. That, that's like trying to build a 10-story building and starting at the eighth floor. So, so while they're, they're working on, on the likes of, of rolling and breathing, get, getting the breathing patterns correct, they should also be working on all of their, their mobility. And it, it's not trying to turn you into a, into a gymnast because, you know, once again, I, I was in, you know, the middle of the bell curve, not average, but normal. I, you know, I wasn't sec the soleil. I mean, I'd like a, just a nice sort of mummy bear sufficient mobility. And so to, to get somebody to that stage, or even just to get them to a stage where it starts making a difference, where you can get some length in the hip flexors and maybe start getting the pelvis and, and spine more vertical, the difference that will make to, to balance and trying to keep the center of gravity over their base of support, it, you can make an enormous difference. But instead, 
they're just trying to walk and walk and walk and walk and walk. And, and then when they have, don't, don't have any success, blame the patient <laughs> and give them coping mechanisms. Another patient of mine, a guy who was um, a, a soldier in the UK, uh, he, he's mid-50s, I, I think, and he, he had um, traumatic brain injury. He was in a coma for, um, for a year. Um, and then I started working with him five years after he came out of the coma, which for that entire time, he came out of the coma, we tried to teach him to walk. That, that failed, no surprise. And then he was in an electronic wheelchair for the, for the next five years. When, when I came to work with him, he was, he was just a head in a bed. Uh, he was a friend of a friend who, who sort of spoke to me about it, and I, I couldn't be happy to help him. And I got a um, friend of mine, Say Squires, who got him in working. He's a soft tissue guy. Uh, he started trying to work on his mobility. I started trying to teach him some rolling skills. Uh, and then we just followed the, followed the path, doing the neurodevelopment sequence, working on his mobility all of the time. And let's think it probably took us, it was 11 months in, and this was last March. And we, we got him standing on his feet, self-supporting, completely self-supporting for the first time. And unfortunately, COVID came in and he, he's, he's up in Liverpool, I'm in Bristol. So I, I haven't seen him for the, for the last year. And so I imagine he's gone a, a little bit backwards just, just because he needs somebody else to help him with his mobility. Previously, he just had, you know, two, apparently two neurophysios coming in to try to maintain him. God knows what they were doing with him. Just managed to climb. Just give us a little more insight to just kind of describe maybe when you say rolling and when you say mobility, just give, maybe give us a couple examples of, of what that, what that, what some of those techniques would, would be. What you'd have to try and achieve is the dissociation of the, of the shoulders and the pelvis along, along a stable spine. Now, probably going to have to do some quick maths and embarrass myself, but I, I think along the length of that, we're we looking at 22 um, different vertebrae and joints going there. That sounds right, now, whatever. Please <laughs> <laughs> a great anatomist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got the shoulders and hips pointing in different directions, then every single one of those vertebrae is going to be in a, in a, in a unique position. Now, neurologically, that, that's huge. And so the first place, first time we, we learn that skill is as babies lying on the floor. So we haven't got the challenge of gravity. We haven't got a cost of failure. And so we're, we're able to learn this really complex skill of, of all of that unique movement. And we, we, we don't get given it as a set drill back in the day. It, a, a baby sees something, it gets turned it over and looks. There's, there's, um, there, there's reactive neurology which will take place with respect to your vision. So the baby looks, sees something it wants, and then it reaches. But that reach then turns the, the shoulder girdle and, and then gets that dissociation in the spine. And let and me I'm add this that. in. When, when babies roll prior to that, it's actually called a log roll. They roll like a yeah. little piece mm -hmm. of sausage, and it's just by yeah. splinting everything and sort of throwing their momentum in one direction. But the elegance that you're talking about, that disassociation roll, is exactly what you say. The head turns a lot, the shoulders turn a little, uh, and the torso turns a little, and the hips turn a little, and, and it's sort of 
everything is working in a sequence, but it's led by the bottom or the top. That move right there establishes single leg stance and reciprocal crawling and walking. It is the dissociation in rolling when you go from a log roll, which is everything goes together, to that segmental top down, bottom up that allows you to step and stride or creep and crawl later on. So the possibility of rolling is there before rolling with dissociation well. And usually one side gets it quicker than the other. And so those baselines are just there for you to keep refining and doing it. But when you see that elegant dissociation, they almost look as effortless as a rag doll and they're generating far less effort and actually Mm -hmm. rolling more Whereas in the very beginning, it's so frustrating for some people, they'll actually fatigue before the lesson plan is complete for the day. But it's yeah. not that you didn't at least create a groove in those neural pathways that you can pick back up tomorrow. If you can use a reason to move in those drills and, and sometimes not even like tell Purpose driven, yes. No, I, I didn't yeah. mean to gloss over that. That is the second thing. Mm-hmm. If, there, if there is a drive and purpose, a multi-sensory reason for doing X, all the better because the, the purpose, the drive, the engagement, and the interest is what makes a baby move from point A to point B. Well, one of the one of the best examples I had of that and of, of the whole shooting match, really, there was a um, a guy um, functional neurological disorder patient. He'd had a he'd had a nervous breakdown and lost all of his movement skills. Um, but he was he, he was uh, mid forties, I think, uh, reasonably active, reasonably good mobility or sufficient. Um, and also compared to the, the other patients that would normally wear, but there's no physical damage in there. Um, but the, the rehab he was getting, it just wasn't going nowhere with him. I had just over, over one weekend of retraining the, the, the neurological, sorry, the neural development sequence and, and giving him flows of putting things together. After that weekend, he was, he was back walking and integrating um, integrate with his, with his life. And see, people are going to ask you, well, what's the one exercise that puts you over the top? Yeah. Knowing yeah. that kind of question destroys the fact of you even letting them know what happened. Mm-hmm. It's the dance. Yeah. We yeah. created a scale dance that was sensory rich and challenging. And that dance seems so similar to the original dance that was still in here that we got the steps down. But people are, there's, it's the, the, the exercise knowledge that you had uh, in your military conditioning background, how much of that served you getting back on your feet when it was personally relevant? Not, that's for performance on the back end of functional independence. And that's where the two, there, there's a sequence. If you don't have functional independence or functional competency, those performance things actually impose risk and hurt your adaptability. They don't enhance it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it takes a while to see it, so we keep doing it. We don't realize mm-hmm. that my future accident is a result of my current behavior. Well, Steve, I got a, I got a question based off you, you know you, the, the example you just gave us where you saw someone and over a weekend, you, you really saw some significant um, improvements. Is there a point, whether it was you personally in your journey or whether some of the patients you work with, where you see that connection, that light bulb go off neurologically where, 
holy shit, this person just got it. Whether it's a through rolling or crawling, you know, I've, you know, again, I'm not comparing what I've seen in my career to what you've seen, but certainly seeing these people who can't squat or can't stand on one foot, there's a point where everything seems to connect. Is that something that you've seen in what you've been doing? Yeah, you, you, you see that that all of the time. It, it's something that Gray always talks about, that, that awareness of what it feels like doing it wrong and then the awareness of what it feels like doing it right. And the, most of the people I, I work with are, are, are long after the, the injury, so way past this supposed six-month glass ceiling. And I use, they usually come to me or hear about me um, because they're... they're they're searching for something to try and improve, you know? And so they've got all of this experience of just hitting brick walls. And then if you can give them something which then does turn that light on. And I mean, it, it can happen in, in any of the, in any of the patterns, just depending on, on, on how far, how far they're developed and what skills they've got. But the, the big ones for me are, um, are the rolling. And then also what the, the, the kneeling and half kneeling patterns, what, what that can give to them and what, what doors that then opens as a result. And those um, are the two positions most void in modern exercise. Uh, yeah. Until we started doing chops and lifts on knees, other than maybe some yoga moves or Turkish getup, people didn't even consider why am I on my knees exercising? Not realizing mm-hmm. that taking all the compensations from your knees and feet really makes you own your core uh, that much more. And then rolling. When, when we introduced rolling back into orthopedics, everybody had a, maybe an inkling of doing it with kids and in stroke rehab. But when somebody sustained a horrible orthopedic neck injury, mm-hmm. they just install their neck range of motion and never go back and make sure that neck range of motion and the trunk work together at each level of the places where they're going to have to work together. You know, they, they never even do. So the glass ceilings that, that a lot of people in our profession impose, whether it's training, a weight loss, uh, brain surgery, it doesn't matter what these glass ceilings are, announce your limitations. They don't allow, announce the limitations of the human spirit because most of these people that are contacting you, they know there's more in them. Mm-hmm. And nobody's yeah. getting it out. So they just find somebody who's done it instead of somebody who talks about it. But I want to say one thing to all of us in healthcare. Don't you dare hold that glass ceiling. If a pilot yeah. makes a mistake, mm-hmm. he dies too. All right? He dies mm-hmm. with everybody. You make a mistake, you're going to send somebody on a trajectory, and they might not meet Steve. So I, I take that personally. When you're a pilot and you make a mistake, you get to eat it too. When you're in healthcare and you impose a glass ceiling that's more about your ability or perspective than it is the person's potential, I wish you would have to walk in their shoes and then maybe you wouldn't be so quick to limit progress. That's the tragedy that's, that's out there because there's so many people in this situation who have got all the motivation and determination that I had but they, they hadn't had exposure to my past at that point. And so people are telling them to do these things. They're pouring all their, their effort into it. And they're, they're just butting up against that glass ceiling. The, the, the lady I work with over in, uh, the, the young girl over in Ohio, Chelsea S. I, um, I, I contacted her, first of all. Because um, in some of the, either the charities or the, the Facebook groups I, um, I, I work with. 
I, she she would post her um, her her attempts at her recovery, and you got mate. She was she was twenty six when she had a a, a Pontian brainstem stroke, a, a real bad one. Um, she had everything going for her, um, and then twenty six years old, it, it it smashed it a bit. Balance, walking skills, all, all movement skills completely gone. Uh, vision skills massively compromised um, voice significantly compromised as well um, and yet her, her attitude every time I see is pouring effort into it but then I, you just see it you know they would have her doing things I don't know working on weight machines just trying to build a bigger muscle and then having her suspended from the ceiling on, on, on a walker when she's just got no movement skills at all. And I think it was something Lee was touching on earlier. But everyone in the room is is sort of happy that what she's doing sort of looks a bit like walking. It, it, it get there. And well, I'd say I, I'd be proud to her first of all, like, but sort of uh, <laughs> like like every um, unsolicited contact from a 50-odd-year-old bloke to a, a very attractive mid-20s girl. Just <laughs> And I probably got put on some some list on the uh, <laughs> Ohio Police Department. But I um, when when I came over to to New Jersey, I I did a um, uh, a seminar of my own. Um, one of the one of the Facebook groups I was involved in, it was heavily um, populated with with people from the US. So I, I said that when I come over, I'd I'd give a, um, a seminar out there. And then the, the place where there was, there was most interest was in Ohio. Then there's, you know, there was so much synchronicity going on. There's a, a mate of mine who I met in, in rally, uh, Patrick Prisbarowski on FMS one and two. Well, he, he's got his own Pilates practice out in Ohio. So he lent me his facility for free. Uh, and then he was actually only 15 minutes down the road from Chelsea. So Chelsea attended the seminar and then that's where I met her then. And then everything sort of followed on from there. And now Patrick also sees her once a week. So uh, he, he can do in-person training with her and, and we can we can discuss things. And so she's, she's coming on great now. I started working with her, I think it was three and a half years post-surgery. She'd had gold-plated medical insurance. She had three months inpatient um, rehab. And then between one and three physio visits per week thereafter until they said, you know, sorry, there's nothing more we can do with you. Um, she had a, a Sarah assessment, um, that's a scale and, and rating for, for ataxia. Now, I, I think it, it's something like if you score 16.25 on it, you, uh, you're in severe dependence. Uh, for activities of, of daily life, uh, higher than, than 17, you, you, your wheelchair dependence for ambulation, and, and Chelsea scored 20. But in, in going with it, her mobility was great, which was a, a real asset. We've addressed things using the neural development sequence from the ground up, and well, at, at the moment she's um, she's walking with assistance. At the minute, but the big thing with Chelsea, what she really bought into was living her recovery. 
the walker got slung and she just cr- crawled around the house whenever she whenever she needed uh, well, had mobility needs. Uh, we've had a climbing on an indoor climbing wall that's brought her on hugely. Um, it, it, it's been fantastic to be a part of, to be honest. How did you? How was that process, Steve? So you you did that primary. Obviously, you did it all remote, where you would just do Zoom um, contact, like Zoom calls, or was this even before Zoom was such a big thing? I, the first matter when I went over to uh, Ohio in it was 2019, uh, and I, I did my seminar then. So hopefully, she was able to take take something out of the seminar, um, and then. We started down the pathway of her asking advice and then swapping videos. And I, I would send a video of what I would recommend and then I would critique the one that came back. But where the, where the graph went like a hockey stick was last, last March with, um, the lockdowns. Cause all of a sudden both of us had a load of time on our hands. Zoom became the universal form of communication. She stuck a pair of, AirPods in, and then we were doing live sessions every day. Um, and then that, that was when, you say, things just went through the roof. As a thank you for supporting the podcast, FMS is offering an exclusive discount of 30% off our Fundamental Capacity Screen online course. So if you're FMS certified, this deal's for you. And if you're not FMS certified, go get certified and this deal's for you. In this course, you'll learn how to get your clients and athletes on the most efficient path to optimal performance. We cover the four key components of fitness, how to test these components, and strategies for correcting and conditioning. You'll receive over two hours of video instruction, the FCS manual, and after you pass the exam, you'll access a free year of FMS Pro membership, including the FMS Pro app. Please note that the FMS Level 1 certification is a prerequisite to the FCS certification. To receive 30% off your FCS course today, use promo code FCSPOD30 at checkout. That's FCSPOD30 at checkout. For more details, follow the link in the description of this episode and get started on your course today. Now let's get back to the podcast. Steve, one thing talking about with your situation, I'm sure, as well as the people you work with, there is no finish line, right? There is no, there is no, you know, the medical model for these situations has put this ceiling in place, glass ceiling, as you called it. But once you break through that and they start seeing some progress, it, that's just the journey they're on. I mean, you're not going to, I mean, right now, all of us that all of us on this podcast listening, I'm sure you're still trying to make yourself better, physically fit, more healthy at that level. It's still no different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my recovery is, you know, it's still ongoing. It's four years to the pretty much to the day now for myself. And there's still, I still have deficits. Um, but it, it was quite a while ago that I, I stopped having a, a perception of it, not consciously, but stopped having a perception of it as, as rehab. It was just like forever I've been, you know, when I've been training, you're always working on one aspect of your, of your fitness or, or even trying to uh, train or rehab an injury. And so it, it just becomes, I'm just working on improving my skills, you know, just making tomorrow's me better than today. And, and that also takes away uh, any pressure of, of goals and milestones. It's you, you just keep working on making tomorrow's you better than today. Um, and, you know, that 
exactly as you say, once you're there, you're not going to stop working on yourself. You just want to keep improving and improving. And that's that's where I am. I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll do, you know, try to assess things consciously if I'm not improving in the way I would either hope or might have expected. But, you know, having a, an expansive outlook on life, I think, is the, is, is the best one. Um, lockdown shut all of the gyms, which was a, a heartbreak. But then I only, I live 20 minutes walk from, from the Avon Gorge, which is, it's got cliffs in there. I started solo climbing there last year that the weather was glorious. And, and that just started offering so much more to me recovery again, because it, it is all neurological. One of the deficits I would experience when I tried to run was that I would lose peripheral vision and I would lose visual acuity. Um, and very much of the mind that it was linked to the amount of information that my brain could process at any one time. Multitasking was, was very difficult. When I got back in a car, that sort of used to create a lot of neuro fatigue, but it would also in, improve me. And then when, whenever you improve yourself with a, a new skill, because you know, every area of your brain gets reused, it, it pops out in an improvement elsewhere. So the, the climbing is, has been fantastic. My, my vision, which got shot a bit by the stroke and then the surgery, um, I had to have prisms in my glasses just to try to see straight. I actually got, got these fitted um, on, on Saturday. I had an eye test and he said, yeah, your vision's excellent for a 51-year-old. So, <laughs> it wasn't four years ago, mate. <laughs> <laughs> had there been certain setbacks and, and what kind of, what ways have you seen to work for you as well as some people you work with to kind of overcome those potential setbacks? I got a little bit carried away with uh, my sort of rapid progress and once or twice drifted into um, a little bit of capacity training a bit too early. My scapular range of movement wasn't, wasn't great. And so I was doing some hanging exercises for that. And then I, I thought a great idea would be to, you know, doing sort of scapular push, pull-ups to, to get that scapular rotation going. But when you've just had a six-inch incision <laughs> up at the back, <laughs> it, it didn't play out too well. And that put me in a wheelchair for a, for a couple of days. Uh, so that, that, was a, that was a big one for me. Oh, overreaching can be a bit bit of a of a barrier although you know that the obstacle being the way neuro fatigue will, will 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 stop you going down going too far down one of those bad roads you know obviously the situation is a shocker but as, as far as finding the right road as long as you're running with the right philosophy it, it will show you the way and it will be self-limiting and and what I've noticed about neural fatigue, and I can give you two examples that that maybe a lot of people can tap into. Um, I experienced after my neck surgery, I had balance and posture problems. I lost a, a lot mm-hmm. of strength in my hands, and I had very poor balance. And I love stand up paddleboarding. What mm-hmm. I realized when I tried to get back to that was, in a very small amount of time, I was just smoked. It wasn't that my shoulders yeah. were hurting or my low back was hurting. I was just fried. 
And, yeah. and I was reading that signal incorrectly. I was reading that as if it was metabolic failure, not that mm-hmm. it was neural fatigue. You just got to yeah. turn off all this information for a minute and let your brain recalibrate, reset, <laughs> ingest new information. And I've noticed that, and you, you came to the FCS course, when we put people on that six-position carry yeah. and they're walking uh-huh. around the room, most yeah. of them look worse at six minutes than they do at 10 minutes. And that because yeah. it takes them six mm-hmm. minutes to let go of their fitness image and 10 mm-hmm. minutes to say, I can carry this any way I want to. I just got to live for 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, subconscious takes over. But I see that neural fatigue happen quicker when you try to force something, if you just let it happen, it's still coming. But if you recover from it, you get your sleep, you hydrate, you maybe downgrade your movement expectations the next day, it'll come right back. That that mm-hmm. neural adaptivity is so much quicker than the physical adaptivity. That's why they say some of your greatest strength gains in, in a new movement pattern will be in the first four to six weeks, even though we yeah. can't tell from a tissue biopsy that your muscles mm-hmm. are any different. So this neural adaptivity has to happen in a well and organized way because you don't want the physical adapti- adaptability before that because you will form your body incorrectly. And so yeah. many people have sought that, that physical transformation before they can demonstrate that neural transformation. And you're going to get exactly what you're asking for. Really strong hips that don't move anymore, or, you know, a, a really big chest that robbed you of third of your shoulder mobility. So, you know, if, if you get on that approach and you don't let it happen the way it's supposed to, and, and neural fatigue doesn't have spot soreness anywhere in the body. It is a general, mm-hmm. I just got to yeah. get off my feet. And that's and once you know how to read that signal, it's refreshing to know, wow, I maxed out my brain today. Uh, and nobody mm-hmm. does that anymore. They max out their body every time they go to boot camp or their, their favorite gym, but they never max out their neural capability because they don't get on the razor's edge and accept success and failure the way it was designed. Um, and what, what I've found as well with, um, with patients that when they – when they come out of a period of, of neurofatigue, their, their skills, have a, that, that's usually the, the bit which marks a step change up in, um, in, in their movement quality. It's, you know, it, 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 it's a learning process that they're taking on board. Um, sleep is the magic source. That is, is what they need to, to process that and come out of the other side. Sometimes it can take a week. You know, sometimes it can just be as little as, as, as a nap in the, uh, the afternoon and then neuro fatigue's gone and, and they've got a little bit of magic. But, the, you know, that thing, as you say, it is a, a global thing. Like someone's just taking the dilithium crystals out. And- I've also found that sometimes you can refresh the palate, so to speak, by going back to an earlier activity and maybe yeah. taking a more rhythmical approach. No, so if that's mm-hmm. listening to music and rolling, it doesn't matter what it is, but if you on when you're coming out of neural fatigue, if you will go back to something super simple and somewhat rhythmical, that that actually refreshes uh, just like sleep and hydration does. So just think about what you were working on the week before that you don't think you have to revisit. This is when you yeah. revisit it. Mm-hmm. And, and not only should it be there, but deepening those grooves while you're not overstressing 
actually reinforces mm-hmm. it more. So to me, that I don't know if you have little suggestions like that, but usually dropping back and or making it it rhythmical helps. So that, that's what sort of in, in, intuitively done something similar to that in the way that when we're when we're hitting those, they do go back to the the the, the more straight, less complex primitives. And just try to mark mark time with them till the till the neuro fatigue is uh, is past and we come up the other side. The, for me, Steve, what I've done uh, is after I got through a lot of my developmental positions and had my neck and my balance and my posture and everything, I didn't get too heavy into trying to get strong again. I tried to get coordinated with uh, Indian club training and just some challenging myself on a balance beam. And now my Indian club is my default rhythmical reset to get both hemispheres of my brain working together, but to also put my my neck and trunk and core because most people think the Indian clubs, I got to stand still. You can add steps and stuff to that. So that, that's been mine at the level that I'm working. But, but a lot of people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, same Indian club stuff we put on the video three years ago. I did, you know, I just, it just gets smoother, but that ends up being one of my refreshed days when I'm feeling sore. You'd think I'd go into a foam roll or stretching, but I actually go into that rhythmical, uh, neuro rehab. We just call it Indian clubs cause it's sexier. <laughs> it's, funny, it's, it's funny you, you say that you, you actually, um, bridge the gap for me back in, um, 2019 in New Jersey with the, uh, introduced me to Indian clubs. At, at that stage, my my slow time movement quality, and even doing things like the Turkish get up, all of that was there. But I I couldn't bridge the gap to more dynamic movement. Um, running was was a you know was still beyond me. Skipping again was that, that just that bit out of reach, and I was trying to find how to how to to cross the Cross that gap, and the the Indian clubs was was exactly that. Uh, with some of the hip engine movements and getting rhythmical with that, that started giving my neurology the ability to control powerful movements, but integrate movements with movement being the key rather than the the power. And then that's then translated up to to a number of things. I mean, table tennis has been a a real asset just for it's speed of mind as much as speed of body. I'm glad you brought that up too, because when, when we train in, in yoga, in the Turkish getup and in many of the ground-based movements, you are trying to teach your brain to make appropriate tension. But when you play table tennis or play with Indian clubs, you act or get on a balance beam, you actually have to dump tension. Meaning you got to let go attention so you can feel more. And you've seen the two fighters, the, the one that, that is really stiff yeah. and ready to take mm-hmm. a punch and the one that's just dancing yeah. around and you know mm-hmm. what's getting ready to happen. And so what you can't play table tennis and be stiff. You can't do mm-hmm. Indian clubs and be tense and you can't get on a yeah. balance beam thinking you're going to control the beam. Right. You got to listen to what the beam tells you to do. So I, I do think in the early part of gaining our independence, we need to learn to preload tension. That's exactly what Pavel did when I learned kettlebells. He's going to make the kettlebell feel lighter same day, preload some tension. But I think it's equally beneficial at the right time and place when you have enough mobility and stability, dump the tension 
and see if you can still hold your posture. Dump the tension and see if the pattern is still there. So I think that that a lot of people get very bought into our message about making that tension, but they don't understand the other end of it. it. FCS saying, if you can't recycle that tension, if you can't go through those relaxation tension cycles, mm-hmm. you will never have the elegance of what the human form can do. So building tension on the front is sometimes paramount, but then learning to let go of all but that which is necessary makes you quicker at the end. So. And it just underlines our movement quality is movement quality, whether you're, you're right at the start of the, of the curve or at the end and you're looking for top end performance, you know, movement quality is movement quality. So with all of your experience and your fantastic mindset when it comes to your recovery and spreading it with the world, how exactly are you going about that now? You kept mentioning clients. How, how is that working? You, you only need a, a small set of clients to, to take up a hell of a lot of your time with, with the, the neuro rehab. Because you can't go from the point of view of you see them once a week and then give them a suite of exercises. And, you know, if they, they can do that one hour a day, well, I, because of their compromised movement lifestyle, well, I'd suggest the other 23 hours in the day are going to have a bigger impact. So it's with a, a small concentration of, of clients. It's all remote at the minute, which has been driven by, uh, by COVID. Um, um, we're just coming out of the lockdown here, so I'm hopefully going to get back in touch with Tommy, the, that was the, the soldier uh, I'd recommended. But the World Congress for Neurorehabilitation, that was supposed to be in Leon, but I got deprived of a nice little trip by, by COVID there. And that was, that was done online. I was hoping to try to get out there and, you know, do a bit of evangelizing, but that, that you know, wasn't the case. And then I sat in on some of these lectures. I won that re- relearning to walk lecture. Um, there's one of the top guys up there talking, and, and I tried to put forward in the in the Zoom chat. You know, shouldn't we be looking at at taking all of the hardware or the mobility issues off the table first before you know we, we start looking at whether they can exercise in this movement? And um, you know, bless the fella. Like I think he was trying to humour me because I think he did everything but roll his eyes. And he said, well, obviously, you know, before we start these rehabilitation techniques, we'll sort out mobility issues like a broken hip. I'm like, what? <laughs> broken hip? You know, what, what, what about an inability to get a vertical pelvis? But yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's just not in the program. They, well, the, the, the thing that, that I think most keynote people in that position don't realize is they never had to bet their life on what they just said. You did. Yeah. And so I'm going to take the guy that took the bet and won. I'm not going to take the guy that's making a projection based on a path he's never walked down. I appreciate the expertise, and I appreciate you reading me your success and failure rates. But that doesn't mean you get to put a glass ceiling on human potential. They, they never do. And I think, I think to, to argue the other side, doctors have to be very conservative with their prognosis or they'll give you false hope. But at the same time, this guy is making a statement that hasn't been completely vetted and you actually just disproved. Mm-hmm. Uh, in reality, not in a double randomized <laughs> blind study or something like that. You proved it that that what he just said doesn't exist, and many of the details that are important to you, 
he may give lip service to these things should be checked too, but who's going to check them, right? Mm-hmm. Who's going who's gonna to do that? Everybody with their recommendation always thinks somebody else is going to handle all those other systems, and a yeah. system needs to handle all comers and put you right where you belong. It's up to you whether you want to live your rehab or just consume it for 29 minutes a day until your insurance stops paying, which in the States is most of the reason why you reach maximum medical improvement. It's got nothing to do with your function or your ability. It's got to do with your third-party payer. <laughs> but, but chronic, um, people in the, 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 the chronic stage of, of stroke disability, that, that's the biggest cost center in the U.S. Uh, health insurance. You've got something like between three and seven million people uh, in the in the chronic recovery phase who are going to be sucking up all of these resources, and and the approach is sort of managed decline. It, it's not about getting them back walking, and and that that model is is statistics driven, and you know it, it's it's a reasonable it's a reasonable position. Say right, all of this has happened before, so this is where we should set our expectations but for, for me and maybe it's my knowledge but all of the science points otherwise neuroplasticity is is available from cradle to grave it it, do, it doesn't stop so if that's the case why why this six, six months and the answer for that is oh well that's that's what's always happened well yeah because you've always done the same thing <laughs> well, hopefully, well, hopefully, Steve, it does sound like to me you're you're on that path. You're, you're the disruptor in that world right now, and I think I think that's what it's that's what it's going to take is someone. And I think you, it sounded like, it sounds like to me, listening to you talk now, that that's that's the role you're trying to play is going to the conferences, listening to some of these quote unquote experts talk about you know, what they have found and what's the, the statistics. And in Gray's, you know, world, what he says, average is not necessarily normal. Um, that's what they're looking at. That's what the statistics are saying is this is what, this is where in six months they should be. And then, you know, raise your hands and that's what it is. But I think with what you're doing and, and some of the people, the successes you're having should hopefully, you know, your story can get a hold of some physician, some expert out there that's willing to take the chance to do the research, because that's what it's going to take. It's going to take yeah. research. Mm-hmm. It's going to take some some other data out there to uh, really start to move the needle where, you know, at these conferences, people start to take a little bit different look and start changing, changing little things. Un- but, unfortunately, uh, we see these experts and academics make a professional change mm-hmm. when it's their spouse or their child that is faced yeah. with what you're faced. And then they realize, oh my gosh, uh, if, if this is all my expertise can do for this person I love, I'm not satisfied. Mm-hmm. And only then and then do they go deep and they come out the other side. And, and that's unfortunate that, that it's got to be that way, but confirmation bias is easy to recognize in others and impossible to recognize in yourself. And I heard an economist say this the other day, if you want to recognize confirmation bias in yourself, follow a system and see how many times mm-hmm. you deviate from yeah. that system. Um, mm-hmm. It's the only way to fix it. And so if this neurodevelopmental sequence is universally good enough 
for every brain that's ever been on this planet, then when yeah. that brain has an interrupt, tell me why this is probably not something to lean toward. The brain has already said, this is the way mm-hmm. I want my meal of movement consumed. And if that meal is ever interrupted, don't pick up where I left off. Go back to the beginning and make sure all those dominoes line up. And then, yeah, it will be automatic and you can take all the credit for it you want. <laughs> and Steve, do you, do you feel like that's like your next, like your next chapter? Uh, being, doing what you're doing, getting out there. I mean, you know, you, you know, you got your story on YouTube, you know, obviously we're having you on because this story is so fascinating to, to hear and, and have the person, then the lives you're starting to touch, even though this, it's a small, as you said, you can't handle, you know, 500 individuals, yeah. but is this kind of the, the direction you want to, you see yourself role, you see yourself playing? I, I absolutely. Just, I've just been trying to give amplification to the, the message um i would have had some success with uh, some of the, the the hospitals and and some of the sort of forums in the in the uk but you know as i say covid has been the, the great disruptor like hasn't it um it's gotten away of so many so many things so trying to push push the message out but i'm a, a little bit like sisyphus at the minute if you know your greek mythology you know that's the guy pushing the constantly no, I, pushing I know. The, the ball up the hill don't don't worry though. Yeah. Don't worry. It's 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 a different age, and and I think uh, I think you've looked at at all angles of it. The thing that I want people to take away from this is when when you are faced with with something is is life threatening and life quality threatening as a brain injury, this sequence works. It still uh, blows me away how many people will not adopt this for simple orthopedic problems, spinal surgery, extremity Mm -hmm. surgery. It's not going to nearly be the path that you had to do, and they will have a different journey. But gaining your postures and patterns back in that natural and elegant way, whatever the obstacle you, you you're going to, you're going to hit an obstacle. It's going to be orthopedic. It's going to be neurological. It's going to be mobility, stability, but live your rehab is what I'm hearing you say, whether it happens to your brain or your back or your big toe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and movement is the solution to a movement problem. I think that was on an earlier podcast. You know? <laughs> Did Lee say that? <laughs> Somebody has to decipher your shit. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for sharing your story. We really appreciate you coming on and being on the podcast and, and having this conversation with us. And we hope to just project it more to the masses and maybe get some more people involved. Yeah, well, it, it's been, a, been an absolute pleasure. And uh, it's your round, by the way, Greg, if you remember. Oh, yeah, yeah it is. It is. I, I, <laughs> I, I always leave when somebody else is buying before it comes back around to me. But, okay, you caught me. <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks. Thanks to all of you. Thank you for uh, the work you. you're doing. Thank you so much for what you're doing. That's it for this season of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks. Until then, catch up on any episodes you may have missed. And if you like what you heard, please like and subscribe. And until next season, remember to first move well and then move often.